So we're looking at the seven seals tonight, and as we just recap the book of Revelation for a second, in chapter one, we saw a revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw him in the garb of the high priest, which tells us about his intercessory role. We saw him in glory. He had eyes like you know, flames of fire. He had feet like bronze. Uh, there's pictures there of his eyes are all seeing. There's pictures there of judgment. We moved into chapters two and three, and as we did, we saw seven churches addressed, seven churches, historical churches in Asia Minor. We saw five of the seven churches actually get rebuked for something that they weren't doing well, and we saw some of the churches encouraged because they were going through difficulty. They were having to fight false prophets, false teachings. Some of the churches were facing imprisonment and martyrdom, and in Revelation two and three, the Lord of the church examines the seven churches and gives them both encouragement and correction, and we saw that. We moved into a scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 where we saw these cool creatures, four of them, and they had eyes you know, all over the place, and they never ceased to sing, remember? Holy, holy, holy. We made a connection there between the scene in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, whether they're the seraphim or the cherubim, you can go back and forth. We also connected Revelation 4 to Ezekiel chapter 1 and descriptions of the glory of God and the throne room of God. We made some connections to the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai. As we moved into Revelation 5, we saw what took center stage is a scroll. It's a seven-sealed scroll. I showed you, showed you a picture of it last time. It had these seals on it, and a universal search commenced looking in heaven, on earth, and under the earth to find someone who was worthy to open the scroll, to look into it, to break its seals, but no one was found worthy. And remember John, the apostle John, begins to weep uncontrollably because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. But one of the elders who's there in the heavenly scene in the throne room of God says, John, don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome to break the seals, to look into the scroll, to open the scroll. And then John turned, but what he, when he turned, he didn't see a lion. He saw a lamb as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. I told you the horns represent strength, omnipotence. Seven eyes represent omniscience. And in the very throne room of God, before God the Father, the angels, the 24 elders, the cool creatures there, the four living creatures, cherubim or seraphim, begin to worship Jesus Christ right in front of the Father, I told you that it is undoubted that it means that Jesus is God, second person of the Holy Trinity, worshiped right in front of the Father. And then not only was there a, a choir of the 24 elders and the angels and so forth, but at heaven and earth begin to join in. And the last time we were together, there's this incredible anthem of praise that goes up to God. Worthy is the Lamb. And he is purchased uh, with his blood for God, men from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And that's where we've come. The scroll is taken center stage, but more than that, the lamb who's worthy to break the seals. And holy, holy, holy goes up, and worship goes up, and worthy, and redemption can happen. And that's what the title deed, the scroll represents. It's the title deed of the earth. It's whether or not the earth can actually, uh, the process of redemption can be finalized, consummated, if you will. And the lamb is worthy. And as we move into chapter 6, the lamb will begin to break the seals on this seven-sealed scroll. And he will begin to uh, unfold the plan of God. In Revelation 6, if you take a peek at verse 10, one of the questions that's asked in this chapter, Revelation 6.10, is how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? And so we're going to ask the question tonight, in a world that has persecuted the church, you know, a lot of people want to talk about problems in the Christian church, but very rarely do we hear on mainstream media the amount of persecution that has come at the Christian church. I don't know if any of you can handle looking at these websites, but you may or may not have done so. But persecution.com, The Voice of the Martyrs magazine, Fox's Book of Martyrs, the ACLJ, and other resources like that will tell you about modern persecution of the Christian church. And I have shared with you that 
the details are hard to take. Brothers and sisters in the Middle East being crucified. Children being beheaded. This has been the history of the Christian church for 2,000 years. It seems like the, the seed of the church has been the blood of the martyrs. And of course, in the United States, we, you know, sometimes we've, we've had seasons of persecution as the people of God, but we've experienced nothing like a lot of what's happened to the church over the centuries. And we should thank God that we live in a country that was founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, and at least there are people today fighting for religious liberty and trying to keep the Bible where it needs to be and so forth. But our, our own culture, I'm sure you've noticed, is moving away from that. And the, the United States, in many ways, has been ripe for persecution to come our way. And that's not what we pray for, and none of us have a martyr's complex. But it wouldn't surprise me if things go the way that they could go in the near future that we would be facing at least more difficulty. But tonight we are a free people. We open the church doors. We celebrate Jesus Christ. But we have, we have a lot to think about and a lot to consider when we consider judgment. Because this chapter is going to move from persecution and a time of great tribulation for the people of God into the judgment of God. And when, whenever you mention the judgment of God, people get a little squirmy and a little nervous because they start to wonder, well, what, what place does the judgment of God actually have to a modern person's worldview or even consideration in, in daily life? Part of the reason that the wrath of God is going to come is it's going to come on people who have killed God's people. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So the Lord will repay. In fact, Romans 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says that people are storing up wrath for themselves for the day of wrath because of their stubborn and unrepentant heart. And of course, much of the hatred for God has been directed at his people over the centuries. And God is going to repay. Unless someone repents, God is going to repay. And that is good news, actually, for the church, especially for the persecuted church. Especially if you think about Daniel's 70th week and you've done any study of prophecy and you know, you know how the Bible spells out how difficult times will get in that season. Uh, there's going to be great gratitude for the return of Jesus Christ and for the uh, outpouring of things that are here in the book of Revelation. Judgment Day, Armageddon, we've all heard these kinds of things Merrill says, it is the last resort of God's wisdom and holiness. In it, God takes no delight, speaking of his wrath. Yet the necessities of good government, the maintenance of order under rightful authority, and the highest regard for the welfare of the good require this ultimate vindication of righteousness at the expense of the incorrigibly wicked, close quote. There are some people that, frankly, are just not going to repent, and as the book of Revelation unfolds and we get into some of the tougher chapters and we're not there yet, we're going to watch people do everything but repent. They're going to experience the wrath of God. They're going to shake their fist at God and they'll do everything except repent. And so these chapters also remind us of the holiness of God and the importance of repentance. Um, so... We are moving into this chapter called Revelation chapter 6. We're looking at the seven seals. And let me just kind of lay out a big picture chronology. This is my view. I'll let you consider how I see this unfolding. I believe what happens here is that the first five seals of Revelation 6 are not the wrath of God. They are the wrath of Satan and the wrath of man. I believe that we are not going to see the wrath of God come until Revelation 8.1. What we're going to see is seals broken, six seals namely in Revelation 6 that get broken. We're going to see the consequences of those seals that are broken. Ultimately, God is sovereign over what happens. Here's a parallel example. In the book of Job, when Satan is given a certain level of... Uh, a leash, if you will, to damage Job's life, to kill children, to cause calamity and danger. God says to him, okay, you can do this to Satan, but you can't touch his life. 
And so we can see that ultimately, even when Antichrist is up to his no good and all hell is breaking loose, literally and figuratively, God is still on the throne. We'll see his sovereignty. We'll see this in the image of the lamb breaking the seals. Verse 1, Revelation 6 says, And I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. Now this is the lamb had taken the scroll. He was worthy. When the lamb had broken one of the seals, you could just write in your Bible, seal number one. And I heard one of the four living creatures that we've seen around the throne. We saw them in Revelation 4 singing, holy, holy, holy. They said, as this living creature said with a, a voice like thunder or a voice of thunder, come. A way that you can render this is be going. So it is the angel, one of the four living creatures that summons one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and they seem to go hand in hand. One of the four living creatures to one of the horsemen says, be going. Remember the scene is the throne room of God Ultimately, this is under the supervision of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. All three we've seen in the throne room of God. So judgment day and all that unfolds is under the auspices of God. But the angel, at the direction, of course, ultimately of Almighty God, says to this horseman, be going. Seal number one is broken, and out he goes. One of the four living creatures says with a voice of thunder, come or be going. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, verse 2. And he who sat on it, he who sat on it had a bow, and, it, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. If you have an NIV, it says, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown. Theologians call this a divine passive. I'll explain in a second. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest, Revelation 6.2. Notice he was given a crown. Theologians call this a divine passive. What they mean by this is that ultimately this first horseman of the apocalypse, as he goes out, is still under the ultimate sovereignty of God. God is allowing him. God gives him a crown. Here the crown that he has is called a Stephanos. That is a victor's crown. It's something that you would win. It's like the wreath of flowers that you would win back in the day at the Olympic Games. Today, if you win an Olympic race, a judge gives you a gold medal. Back in the times when the games were present, back in their early days in Athens and other places when the Apostle Paul was alive, these games were alive and well. If you won a race like that, they wouldn't give you a gold medal. They would give you a wreath of flowers. The judge would place that wreath upon your head for winning the race. This is what the victor's crown represents. It's, it's not a diadem. A diadem is a royal crown. A Stephanos is like a victor's crown. It's more like something that you would win as an athlete. So you have the first rider. He's, he's to my left right here. He's got a bow in his hand. That's his implement. Each rider will have, will have a color of the horse, will have an implement that they use. And we'll, when we see the final rider, we'll see he needs no implement. We'll talk about that in a second. But he, what he has is a bow. Now, when you think of a bow, what do you think of? Well, back in, in the ancient days, if you watch any of the movies back from the uh, military uh, combat of Rome or times like that, you can see that the main weapon that they had was a bow and arrow or a sword. They would often dip the bow and arrow in a substance where they could cause fire to be on it, and then they would shoot the bow and it would splatter uh, stuff everywhere. So this is kind of the, the ancient um, symbols of warfare. He's on a white horse. When you think of a white horse, what do you think of? Think of a good guy, don't you? I think of Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. Can I get a witness? Long flowing hair, down the mountain he comes to save the day while the orcs are going. Hur, hur. You gotta be a fan of that movie, aren't you? If you're not, please go see the series. You just gotta. Anyway, let me say this. The horses are symbolic. Many years ago, I was having a discussion with a professor at a local Christian college, and I said to him, Jesus is coming back on a white horse. I was a young Christian, and there's the, the armies of heaven are gonna follow him. And he said, I just have one question for you, Michael. Where are they gonna park all those horses? It's a deep question. Just think about it for a second. Well, the horses are part of the symbolism of the book of Revelation. They represent 
what's going to be happening in the world. Now, there are two major views on this rider, this horse and rider. One major view, and you can see this in some ancient commentaries by Irenaeus, for example, and even a modern commentator like Henry Morris, which I have great respect for him, would say that the first horse and rider is Jesus Christ. He's on a white horse. The first seal has been broken. And out he goes, bent on conquest. After all, isn't this what the book of Revelation is all about? Jesus Christ coming back to take the earth and the world and restore order. And we would certainly, I think, all agree. But there are some significant differences between chapter 6 and chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus does return on a white horse. I would say to you, there's a little bit of problem just in thinking about the the dynamics of the passage, because the lamb is breaking the seals, then is he riding out on the white horse again? Is he doing both simultaneously? There's some problems with the imagery, although we could probably get around that because we're still dealing with symbolism. So I'm not going to just push that to the side, but in 6.2, you have, uh, he's wearing the Stephanos, the victor's wreath. In 19.11, which is the parallel passage, we won't go there for this moment, He's wearing a diadem. In fact, it says he's wearing many diadems or many crowns. You could look at uh, Revelation 19, 11, and 12. Here he has a bow. There, in Revelation 19, he has a sharp sword that's coming out of his mouth. So there's other things that I could draw to your attention. Um, things that, the difference between a, a series of devastating calamities that follow this first writer Conquest, war, famine, and death. And then in chapter 19, uh, what's happening is this is the final wrath of God with the riding out of Jesus Christ on the white horse. A final and fatal objection, says one, one commentator, is the repeated use of there was given, which normally in Revelation refers to the divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. In other words, it says it was a crown was given to him. Jesus has many crowns but he is God. So everybody with me? So, so what's the conclusion, you might ask, Pastor Michael? Who is this for, first horse and rider? Open for some debate, but I think a large majority of scholars we would all respect would say the first horse and rider is the Antichrist. He is what you would call a messianic pretender. Antichrist means in the place of Christ or against Christ. If you're anti-something, you're against it, right? So when you think of Antichrist, he tries to act in the place of Christ or he is against Christ. But notice he rides on a white horse, which makes him look like what? A good guy. We do know when we look at Daniel 9, 24 through 27, just write it down for your notes. You've all probably heard this before. We've heard stuff about the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel for a period of one week. One week of sevens or seven years. We've heard about the midpoint or the three and a half years. We'll talk more about this as we get into these chapters. But this Antichrist rides out. And what's his bent? His bent is military conquest. When you read things about the Antichrist in other passages, in 2 Thessalonians, in the book of Daniel, you can see that military conquest is part of what he does. He's ruling with an iron fist. Uh, but he looks like a good guy, at least at first. There seems to be, you know, scholars like to talk about a peace treaty that he signs with Israel, and maybe even he has some role in helping with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and all of these kinds of things. As, ja as uh, Matthew records the Olivet Discourse, and this is the other place I asked you to be in, we're just going to flip back and forth to compare Revelation 6 with Matthew 24. I want you to see what Jesus had to say about these times. And we're going to draw a comparison between the seals of Revelation 6 and the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. So Matthew 24, and Jesus is answering the question that's uh, given to him in verse 3. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, 3, Jesus was. This is why this is called the Olivet Discourse. The disciples came to him privately I think another uh, text tells us that it was Peter, James, and John. And they said, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's in the temple area. They've just looked at the temple buildings. They're very impressive. Jesus just told them, 
the, these buildings that you're so impressed with are going down. And they ask him a question. They said, tell us, when will these things be? In other words, when's Jerusalem going to be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? The word coming there is an important word to learn. It's a Greek word called parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. And it speaks of the presence of Christ returning. And then they ask a third question. What will be the sign of your coming? And what's your Bible say there? The end of the age. The end of what age? Well, I would tell you it's the end of this age. This age that we live in now will be summed up. Some people you know, like to talk about dispensations and so forth, but we've all heard about the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is mentioned six times in Revelation 20. That reign of Christ will start a new age. You could call it the golden age. The Jews like to call it the golden age or the thousand-year reign of Christ. So this age, they say, when will it end? What will be the sign that surrounds it? And Jesus responds, he says, verse 4, Matthew 24. He says, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead how many? Many will be mis misled. Now the first horse and rider, everybody look up at the screen. We've identified as who? The Antichrist. When Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse answering questions about the last days, the first thing that he mentions is don't be misled by people who say that they are the Christ. Someone who is claiming to be the Messiah, don't be misled. So we draw a parallel between seal number one and the first statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 24. Everybody with me so far? This is how this is going to work. So you could write in your Bible safely here, seal number one in Matthew 24. Write it right next to that verse because Jesus has said the same thing that John says, and John was there when Jesus gave this sermon or this, he responded to this question. Take a peek for a moment to the next book. It's Mark 13. This Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Just to give it a little bit more detail, same same uh, message, same location, Mark 13, 6, Jesus says, many will come in my name saying what? I am. Do you notice in your Bible, you probably have he italicized. Apparently there's going to be many coming in his name saying simply I am. Whose name is that? <laughs> That's the name of God. And they will mislead many. Now, we know that there's been the David Koreshes of our time. There's been people who have had Messiah complexes. But over the period of years, from the time of Jesus, and even before he showed up on the scene, there were Messiah-like figures showing up in Israel claiming to be the Messiah. They had gained a certain amount of followers. Many of them, you know, were dealt with severely by Rome. There's been messianic pretenders all throughout history. But this first rider is going to kind of be the ultimate antichrist. Many antichrists have gone in, into the world, 1 John tells us, but this one will be the end all. He will be the antichrist. Everybody with me so far? And Jesus identifies this and so does um, John. Now, one more on this. 2 Thessalonians, which is to your right, 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see symmetry between Paul, Jesus, and John. 2 Thessalonians, pick it up at chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament outside of Revelation has the most information about the day of the Lord and the rapture. And Paul is dealing with some misunderstanding going around the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. He says, now... 2-1, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming, there's that Greek word parousia, the second coming of Christ. I'm going to argue that there's not going to be two comings, there's one second coming. It's singular. We'll talk about that more in a moment. With regard to the coming, parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, what's that sound like? If we're gathered together to the Lord at the second coming, what's that sound like? The rapture, right? that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter 
as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, would you all underscore, if you haven't done this before, everybody underscore the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a very specific phrase in the Bible. If you want to do this later, if you want to get more study on this, go ahead and run in your concordance the day of the Lord. You will see numerous Old Testament authors talk about the day of the Lord. Isaiah will talk about it. Zechariah talks about it. Amos talks about it. It's going to be all through your Old Testament. Ezekiel talks about it. The day of the Lord is the time of divine visitation for judgment. In fact, over and over again, the Old Testament and New Testament writers say the day of the Lord will not be light, it will be darkness. It will be a day of doom, a day of dark clouds, a day of wrath. It will be a serious day when God's vengeance comes. In the book of Joel, it's compared to a phenomenon that happened back in the day of Joel with a locust army that invaded and devastated the land. And in embryo, in type, that happening in the book of Joel pictures the ultimate day of the Lord, just like these previous antichrists pictured this final antichrist. There will be a final day, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the day of judgment when God comes back to redeem the planet, to deal with the ungodly. But before he does that, he is going to save his people. He's going to rescue his people. And so that's, uh, that's the day of the Lord. Now notice it says, let no one in any way deceive you. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said. For it, in context, that's the day of the Lord. It will not come unless what happens? The apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now I think you can safely write in your Bible there, that's the Antichrist. Paul says, the day of the Lord, this Second coming, this divine visitation for wrath will not come until two things happen. One, there is going to be some sort of apostasy. When you hear that word apostasy, to apostasize means to defect. It means to move away from a previously held position or stance. When we call someone apostate, that means they made a profession of faith and moved away from it. They defected from it. Now, whether they were a true or false convert is another discussion. Who really knows if someone's converted? Do we know? We have an idea. We can test fruit and all of that. But the only one who really knows if someone's born again is who? It's God. So apostasy, an apostate is a defector. Someone who moves away. Paul says the day of the Lord is not coming until uh, what I would consider a mass apostasy happens, a mass defection, if you will, from a previously held position or stance. And number two, this man of lawlessness is what? Is revealed. Now, who's our first horse and rider? The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. In what way is he revealed? Well, for, he's gone out bent on conquest. Do people really know what he's about at this point in our chronology in Revelation 6? That's up for debate. But this, this one, this Antichrist, opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, if the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and Matthew 24 are all ahead of us, and we've made an argument in the beginning of this study that the proper dating of the book of Revelation is around 95 AD. That means Jerusalem has already fallen in 25 years before that. And everything in the book of Revelation beyond, let's call it beyond chapters, uh, let's just say chapters 6 through 19 is yet future to us. Then that appears, taking Revelation 6, and if you go back there with 2 Thessalonians and Matthew 24, that what's ahead of us is a rebuilt temple. Some of you wonder, why do they always talk about a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem? Well, this, this Antichrist is going to take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, and demand what? Worship. He will not put up with any so-called gods. Any object of worship that is any, in any way a rival of his will be put aside, and he wants worship. Antichrist is going to be kind of the puppet or tool of Satan. 
What did Satan ask Jesus to do in the temptation? Just bow down and worship me. What in Isaiah 14, when, when we have the five I will statements of, of uh, Lucifer, what does he say he's going to do? Raise his place above the stars. He, he's going to make himself just like God. He's going to put himself in God's category. And God says, no, you ain't. And he gets thrown down, right? And so it was his, that was his sin of pride and exaltation. He, he's still been trying to win the world. Right now, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world or the God of this age. So in some ways, I guess he's gotten what he's desired. The second seal is broken in Revelation 6, verse 3. When he, Jesus, broke the second seal, write in your Bible, seal number two, I heard the second living creature, another one of these cool creatures in heaven, saying, come or be going. So the creature, seraphim, cherubim, calls out the second horse. They go in concert with one another. And another, a red horse. So the first was white. The second is red. Red, uh, if you have the ESV, it says bright red. The New King James and NIV say fiery red. Some see here red like the color of blood. He went out. He's told, be going. And out he goes. And to him who sat on it, it was granted, this is another divine passive. It was given, the crown was given earlier. Now it's granted to take peace from the earth. When you take peace from the earth, what do you have? War. And that men should slay one another. And a great or large sword was given to him. So if you look up at the screen for a second, the second horse and rider is red. His implement is a sword. He's called out by the angel be going, and out he goes, and now his role or his position here is to take peace from the earth. The first horse and rider is bent on military conquest. He goes out, Antichrist. Second horse and rider, there's war. It's a natural progression. The Antichrist wants to dominate militarily, and the second horse just comes behind him, and there's war. War breaks out. Men begin to destroy and kill one another. They're slaying each other. Uh, go to Matthew 24, and I would just encourage you, hold a spot in Matthew 24, because I want to see if what Jesus says mirrors what John says. So let's take a look. Matthew 24, we're going to look at verse 6. Jesus says, after he addresses the first part of this, he says, verse 6, Matthew 24, you will be hearing of what? Of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now, the second horse and rider is war. And Jesus said, you will be hearing of war. So I think so far we can see a symmetry. Would you agree? You could write in your Bible, seal number two from Revelation 6. And Jesus says, but it's not yet the end. The end is not yet. Write this down for your notes. This is Daniel 12, 13. The last verse of the book of Daniel says, as for you. Go your way to the end, that you will enter rest, enter into rest, and rise again, for your allotted portion is at the end of the age. Daniel 12, verse 13. Take a peek at Matthew 13, just a little ways back. Matthew 13. Take a look at me, with me, and not at me, but with me, <laughs> um, to verse 39 of Matthew 13. Verse 39. Matthew 13. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is what? Is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Now this end of the age phrase, I would, I would tell you that I believe that's simply another way to say the day of the Lord. He's going to end the age, if you will. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness. will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
or that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Skip down to verse 49 for the sake of time. So it will be at the end of the age, the angel shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them, the wicked, into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now Jesus said when he comes, he's going to come in the glory of his Father and with all his angels. That's Matthew 25, I think it's verse 31. And the angels are going to be very involved in the last days. The angels are involved with the rapture, as we will see, and they're involved with the judgment of God. We can see angels involved uh, in other parts in the Bible in carrying off Lazarus into Abram's uh, bosom or Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. We can also see angels carrying out God's bidding and so forth uh, in terms of judgment. And so they're going to be very involved. Now, so far we've seen a symmetry and we're going to go back to Revelation 6 and see what happens with this third seal now. So you got Revelation 6, we're in verse 5. I'm, gonna, I'm moving a bit methodically because I want you to catch the drift of where we're headed. So when he broke, Jesus breaking again the third seal, seal number three, I heard the third living creature in parallel with the third rider saying, come or be going. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. A pair of scales refers to something for weighing. So everybody look up at the screen. White horse, red horse, black horse. The implement, a little hard to see on the screen, but you'll notice in his right hand he has a pair of scales. And the pair of scales in his hand are for measuring. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures. We're in the throne room, so many believe this is the voice of God, saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. That is, a whole day's work for a loaf of bread, basically. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Oil and wine, the staples of the day. Some say for the wealthy and not so much for the poor. The rider on the black horse has scales. He measures out wheat and barley, two of the major crops in the spring for Israel. And he, this black horse symbolizes famine. Famine. Um, a quart translates a Greek word which measures about a liter. Uh, one and, I think it's one and a half to two pints. The black horse symbolize, symbolizes famine. One quart of wheat would be enough for only one person. Three quarts of the less nutritious barley would be barely enough for a small family. The idea here is famine has severely inflated prices at least 10 times their normal level. When you have military conquest and war and men slaying each other, and in ancient times especially, the land would be ravaged in war, crops would be damaged in times of war, you would expect that after war comes what? Famine. We can even see in some places today where bombing has taken place or there's been civil wars in certain lands and there's probably over 100 wars still going on in our world, even now, what happens? Devastation to buildings, devastation to industry, devastation to crops. Obviously, people die. And so often the result of this is famine. Oil and wine may mean that the rich are still doing okay, but the common or the poor people are not doing well at all. Now back to Matthew 24, let's take a peek at what Jesus said would happen next. We've seen seal, seals one and two, Matthew 24. Look in your Bible with me at verse seven. Matthew 24, verse seven. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be what? Famines and earthquakes. I think you can safely write in your Bible, seal number three, famines are mentioned there, as a result of war, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then Jesus says something sobering. But all these things are merely what? The beginning of birth pangs. Now, I am always cautious to speak about pregnancy in a room filled with women. But I will say this. My understanding of labor is that labor pains begin and intensify as you get closer and closer to giving birth. So 
the beginning of birth pangs is kind of like when your wife says, ooh, 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 something's happening, and you boil water. Who knows why? <laughs> right? You run around. You make sure the, the bag is packed. All that stuff, right? Sometimes it's a false alarm. But it, it's a signal. The signal, unless it's a false alarm, is in a matter of hours, that baby is coming. Birth pangs are a sign. Now, as they intensify, I think all ladies would say, no fun, uh, would like a pass, <laughs> would like, what do they call that thing? It's the thing that you say you're not going to take until you're in pain. And then you say, no, give it to me now. And then you yell at your husband, you did this, <laughs> and all that, but we won't go there tonight. But what we know is when a child's born, Jesus said when a child, when a woman's in labor, she, she's grieved over her pain. Turn back to Revelation 6. But when the child is born into the world, what does she do? She forgets about what she went through for the joy of the child. Here's the parallel. The time of Daniel's 70th week is going to be a time of great trial. But it's going to be like a birthing process. The birth pangs will be forgotten when the new life is here. Everybody with me so far? That's the parallel that Jesus uses. Now the question so far is, well, who's going through the trouble? <laughs> who's the trouble for? Who's the birth pangs for? Who's Jesus talking to? I mean, that's a key question. Let's take a look at seal number four. We'll only move halfway through the chapter tonight. When he broke the fourth seal, Revelation 6, 7, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come or be going. And I looked and behold an ashen horse. Some would call this the pale, the famous pale horse. And he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Now, if you look up at the screen for a second, the fourth horse and rider is the famous pale horse. Um, the color in Greek is green. Some say it's a sickly green, so it, it could have the idea of illness, you know, when you're not feeling good or you're about to get sick in that sense, you know, you can be kind of pale or greenish. Uh, but here, the one sitting on the fourth horse is death, and he has no implement. He doesn't need one because he is death itself. And what follows with him is Hades, which is called the abode of what? The abode of the dead is Hades. So Hades follows with him, just kind of, I think, here a symbol of who he is. So maybe that is his symbol. Hades was following with him. And authority was what? Given to him. Again, the divine passive. God's in control, giving authority. Given to, to them now, so it, it combines the them with death and Hades. Or some would argue that the fourth horse and rider is a combination of, of all the first three, Antichrist, you have war, you have famine, and it culminates in authority given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill, and you have a summation, a summarizing of these, all these riders and horses to kill with what? Sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now this mention of the wild beasts of the earth has brought up a lot of speculation. Some say, does this mean that in the last days, animals will lose control and dominate? Some of you, what was that series that came out? The zoo, right? And the animals, you know, start going, going crazy. Some say the wild beast of the earth is a way, another way of saying the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are identified as what? Beasts. So we do see that. Others say that there's an early letter written about 75 years after the book of Revelation was written. It's, um, I'll try to get you the name here in a second. It was written by an early uh, church father or church writer who, who uses similar language to describe the beasts in the Colosseum. That when early Christians were facing persecution and martyrdom, they were often brought into the Colosseum and fed what? to the wild beasts. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, awesome movie, you see um, some of that imagery there. And you can see how frightening that could be. Well, wild beasts would have, uh, the language is the same, I'll just say it this way in Greek. 
And all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to take you and introduce seal number five, and we'll wrap up. Revelation 6, verse 9 says, When he broke the fifth seal. So we've seen the summation now. We see the fifth seal broken. John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Now, just Bible students, think with me for a second. This may, be, this may make the case that the best interpretation for the wild beast is the image of the Colosseum. Because the next verse says, I saw the souls of those who had been what? Slain because of the word of God, they wouldn't recant and because of the testimony which they what? They maintained. They would not recant. They would not say, I don't believe in Christ under severe pressure. What did John see? He saw their souls. You have a soul. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You have a soul. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill your body but him who can ruin your soul in the deepest part of Hades. Matthew 10, I think it's verse 28. So we're seeing souls underneath the altar, which indicates to me that you have a soul. And number two, I don't think we've had a rapture yet, a resurrection or a rapture yet, because it's souls that are there. So I think we are well into Daniel's 70th week. In fact, I'm going to argue we are way past the midpoint, the three and a half years, and I'll, I'll give you more next time we're together. And we see souls under the altar. And here's the, the other thing to consider. When you're just wrestling with your timing of the rapture kind of stuff. If all of Revelation 6 is the wrath of God, why is the fifth seal martyrdom of Christians who won't recant their faith in the face of the ultimate pressure. That, brothers and sisters, is not the wrath of God. That's the wrath of Satan, the wrath of man. God does not kill his own children. Now, you, Some of you would argue, but Ananias and Sapphira, he killed them. Oh, he did, because they lied and were disobedient. This group, will not recant their faith in Jesus Christ or their belief in Christ or the gospel in the face of the ultimate test. Everybody with me? Martyrdom, the fifth seal, well into Daniel's 70th week, is not the wrath of God. I'm going to submit to you, and I'll give you more on this next Wednesday because we are out of time, that the wrath of God has not begun yet, which then argues that the rapture doesn't have to begin yet, because God's people are not appointed to wrath, but that doesn't mean they won't face persecution. Everybody with me? There's a big difference between persecution and wrath. Jesus said you're going to go through tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So we're going to have to just be thinking as those who are trying to weigh our timing of the rapture, eschatology, uh, what's the famous series of... All those books, what are they called? What, is it, what are they called? <laughs> left Behind series. We're going to have to see if the Left Behind series is right or if there's another view to consider. In the end, the timing of the rapture is only going to really matter to the final generation, right? So again, we're, we're not going to make more of it than what it is. But I think it is intriguing to start to consider some of this data and just honestly wrestle with the scriptures and just kind of see what the timing is going to be. Some of you have asked my, me questions about, well, why do you hold, I hold a pre-wrath rapture view. I'm not a pre-tribber. I'm not a post-tribber. I'm not a mid-tribber. I hold a pre-wrath view. Some of you have asked me, Pastor Michael, what does that mean? And do you believe that the church is going to go through, I don't believe the church is going through wrath, but I do believe the church potentially is going to face tribulation or persecution. See the difference? So that, that is... Part of what we're just going to consider, I have the pulpit, so I get to share my view. <laughs> if somebody else had the pulpit, they might share a different view. You all know that. It's an in-house debate, and I love other people who hold the view and have a great amount of respect for people who hold other views. Walter Martin held a post-trib view. He's one of my heroes. Did I believe he was wrong on the rapture? Yes. Other of my heroes hold pre-trib views, like Chuck Smith, who's now with the Lord. Great respect for Chuck. 
I don't agree. But again, this is not an essential doctrine. But, but I've wrestled with this and, and you know, I've held different views. I held the pre-trib view for a lot of years. And I'm just going to present to you, don't get too excited or frazzled about it. It'll be okay. <laughs> All right? We're just going to go through the scriptures. Here's what we know. Jesus is coming. Yes. He's coming again. We know how the story ends. Yes. And we know that we just need to trust him. Whatever happens, whatever generation this is, where this is going to happen, whether it's 100 years away, 1,000 years away, or 10 years away, we're just going to keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, thank you so much for the book of Revelation. It's so filled with intriguing, <laughs> deep stuff. But thank you that we can study it and find our answers in the word of God and know that ultimately, God, uh, you are coming. Jesus, you are coming. You're going to be on a white horse and you're going to rescue your bride and you're going to judge the unbelieving world for all that they've done to your bride. And they've, man, the world has done, Satan has done a lot of damage, not to, just to thinking just of the church, but thinking of the nation of Israel and thinking of all the, all the damage that's been done against you and against your, your bride. And one day you're going to come to make it right. And man, you have been patient, Lord. You have been so patient. There's been so much sin, so much dastardly, so many dastardly deeds done against your people. And you have waited, but you store up, you know, and there's going to be a day when you come. And I pray that anyone who doesn't know you would repent of sin and just trust you now. Because we certainly don't want to face your wrath. We don't want to face uh, our God, who the Bible says is a consuming fire. We want to know we're cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, uh, cleansed by his blood, saved, secure. And we are if we're in Christ. And if you don't know him, I would just encourage you, run to him, open your heart right now. Don't let your head hit the pillow tonight without settling this eternal question. Your soul is way too valuable. Just cry out to him, Lord Jesus, I believe, I trust you. Thank you that you were slain for me, that you shed your blood. I believe you conquered sin, death, and the grave through the resurrection. Through your death on the cross, your resurrection, I trust you. I turn from my sin, I turn to you. If you need to just do some business with the Lord as a believer. Maybe you've been a bit wayward. You've gone south a little bit. You've been a prodigal. Just come home. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe there's pain in your heart. Maybe you've been disappointed by Christians. We understand. He understands, but just come home. And Lord, as we uh, study your word, just thank you that you have given us hope. You've told us in advance. And uh, we just thank you that you're on your throne reigning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.